Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And if, if we do win, we will be helping a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I knew we have, I knew we have some enemies, but we have some friends too. Richard and Mildred Levin were newlyweds. I said, I think that learn who you want to is all right, that no man should have anything to do with. They had known each other since they were kids. They grew up neighbors in Caroline County, Virginia. Well, my husband's father, he gave us a eight for Elaine, right across the road. And that's where we went to Bill. And I'll be close to my mother and he'll be close to his family. They dated off and on for years before deciding to finally get married. In July of 1958, they'd been married for about five weeks. Mildred was pregnant with their first child together. At 2 a.m. on July 11th, the Lovings were asleep in their bed in their small home when they heard someone at the door. And suddenly... The front door was broken down. Police officers burst into their bedroom. They shined their flashlights into the Loving's eyes. They came one night and they knocked a couple times. I heard them and uh, before I could get up, you know, they just broke the door and came right on in. When we got up there, standing beside the bed with flashlights. They asked Richard, who was that woman he was sleeping with? I say I'm his wife, and the sheriff said, not here, you're not. What? What did the sheriff mean by not here, you're not? Good question. This is Civics 101. I'm Hannah McCarthy. I'm Nick Capodice. And Nick, the answer to that is the story of Loving versus Virginia, the landmark Supreme Court case that determined whether a state could criminalize the act of marriage between a person of color and a white person. Which is exactly the kind of couple Mildred and Richard Loving were. You have Richard Loving and Mildred Loving, uh, and they can't get married in Virginia. This is Magistrate Judge Zia Faruqi of the District Court of Washington, D.C. They secretly go, right, um, to the Las Vegas, apparently, of the East Coast, Washington, D.C., and get married. I can only imagine by an Elvis impersonator. Um, and, and so they get married in the, in the quiet of night and then return to Virginia. You know, we went to Washington to be married. And I guess that's why, you know, we went there. People had been mixed in all the time, so I didn't know any different. I didn't know there was a law against it. You know, the white and colored went to school different and uh, things like that, you know. They couldn't go in the same restaurants. I knew that. But I didn't realize how bad it was until we got married. By the way, that is the voice of Mildred Loving herself from an interview in the late 60s. And when Mildred says she didn't know how bad it was, 
She means until officers burst into her home and told her she was not legally Richard's wife? Not only you're not his wife, he's not your husband, but you're arrested for committing a crime. Richard and Mildred were living in violation of the Virginia State Racial Integrity Act of 1924. The Virginia statute has said that, you know, the punishment, you know, miscegenation is the the term for it, uh, which no one obviously ever says now or probably even then because it's such a mouthful. But uh, the, the statute says punishment for marriage. If any white person intermarries with a colored person or any colored person intermarries with a white person, he shall be guilty of a felony and shall be punished by confinement in the penitentiary for not less than one year and not more than five years. Hannah, can I clarify something? It sounds like this law pertains specifically to people of color marrying white people, not to people of color marrying other people of color, right? So in calling this the Racial Integrity Act, what it actually is is a white purity act. Yes. The whole idea was to protect and preserve whiteness. You could be black and marry a Hispanic person, and that would be totally okay. Uh, But you cannot be white and marry someone who is black or Hispanic and vice versa. Uh, And it has a criminal penalty, right? So, you know, I think most people, when they hear this exists, they would think like, oh, they probably just invalidate your marriage license, right? But this isn't that, right? This isn't even a fine. This is, we are going to put you in prison, imprison you, for marrying someone if you are one of the two partners is white. And that that's pretty severe. The act prevented intermarriage from happening in the state because it required that birth certificates either define someone as white or as quote-unquote colored. You were only white if, for as far back as you could look in your family's history, your ancestry was white. The one exception, which is called the Pocahontas Clause, allowed for one-sixteenth or less of American Indian ancestry. Everyone else was quote-unquote colored. If an interracial couple that included a white person wanted a marriage license, that was not going to happen in Virginia. And even if you got married elsewhere once back home, you better lay low. Still, Richard and Mildred knew of interracial couples in their own community who were left alone. Somebody had decided to make an example of them. This is a lot of Daniel, but we're the only ones that's been bothered about it. It's a lot of the same Daniel. Is that right? Yeah, but see, just, it just, some people that didn't like us, they just talked, see, and started it off rolling. Do you know any other couples who are in the same situation then? Yeah, I know some, but I wouldn't like calling them names. No. <laughs> <laughs> I just wondered if you did. Yeah, I know you. I wonder why they picked on you then. Oh, that I don't know. I never find out. Somebody talked. This was like a sting where they go and they were trying to catch them, uh, you know, uh, having uh, adult relations uh, in, in in the middle. Uh, in the law, I think they say in flagrante derelicto, right? And so they come in there, they have this sting, they raid, they go in there. Um, and in fact, like they were just asleep and uh, they wake him up and say, like, you know, you're under arrest. So what happened? Did the police really drag him out of their home in the middle of the night? And, and the lady carried us to Bowling Green and uh, locked us up. And in January, they had the trial. And they uh, told us to leave the state for 25 years. So they're told to leave the state. The judge who sentenced them, Leon Bazile, commuted their one-year prison sentence on the condition that they leave Virginia for 25 years. In effect, what happened is that they were banished to Washington, D.C., and that they just had to, you know, try to get their family to come visit them or not. So that's, it's pretty disturbing. 
What did the Lovings do? Is this the moment when they decided to fight the ruling? They plead guilty uh, because they're just like, again, this is just such a ludicrous you know, proposition. Like, is this really worth fighting for? Uh, because it just seems so silly. And so they're like, fine, we'll just leave Virginia and move to D.C., which is a D.C. resident um, who uh, is in a mixed race marriage. I was very appreciative to see, uh, you know, my forebearers from Washington, D.C. Were, were already ahead of the curve. The Levings leave behind their family and friends and move to Washington, D.C., the place where they were married. But it's expensive, and it's a far cry from the expansive countryside where they had lived their whole lives. The children didn't have anywhere to play. They, they would like being caged, and I couldn't stand it. I couldn't take it. They couldn't visit their family in Virginia if they went together. In fact, they were arrested a second time during a visit home. What is, how do they handle this? And it becomes expensive and sort of living in D.C. So uh, ultimately they decide, you know, we need help. And they, and they write to Attorney General Robert Kennedy uh, and that he apparently responded and said, yeah, you should go to the ACLU and, uh, you know, he, that they maybe have some attorneys that can help you uh, litigate this. And, uh, you know. I was a prosecutor myself for a while. I don't think I ever got myself, let alone the attorney general, uh, letters of request for assistance and, and then referred him out. But that's, you know, amazing that, uh, and to credit to Attorney General uh, Robert Kennedy. Here's the date so we can be sure that it was June 20th, 1963, and they were living in Washington, D.C. at the time. This is Bernard Cohen, one of the ACLU lawyers who ended up taking Mildred and Richard's case. This is from footage taken the same year that the case went to court. He's reading Mildred's letter to Bobby Kennedy. Dear sir, I am writing to you concerning a problem we have. Five years ago, my husband and I were married here in the district. We then returned to Virginia to live. My husband is white. I am part Negro and part Indian. At the time, we did not know there was a law in Virginia against mixed marriages. Therefore, we were jailed and tried in a little town of Bowling Green. We were to leave the state to make our home. We have three children and cannot afford an attorney. We wrote to the attorney general. He suggested that we get in touch with you for advice. Please help us if you can. Hope to hear from you real soon. Yours truly, Mr. and Mrs. Richard Loving. And it was that simple letter that got us into this not-so-simple case. I would imagine that every Supreme Court case is not-so-simple. So is the Loving's case somehow more so? It's, it's a kind of a hard position to go back and vacate something that someone does that was knowing, intelligent, and voluntary, right? Like they chose to plead guilty. And so withdrawing your guilty plea or trying to uh, essentially vacate it, that is procedurally pretty difficult. It's a lot of effort on the part of the ACLU lawyers, but they eventually figure out a way to get the Levings case moving through the courts. They ask the original judge, Judge Bazile, to vacate, basically undo, the conviction that ordered the Levings to leave the state for 25 years. But Bazile doesn't do that. Pretty, uh, you know, disturbingly, he issues his opinion and he says, um, Judge uh, Bazile says uh, that, quote, Almighty God created the races, white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. And but for the interference with this arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages the fact that he separated the races showed that he did not intend for the races to mix, uh, end quote. And so, obviously, this judge was not sympathetic uh, to the Loving's claims. Uh, and so they then appeal their case, and it goes to the Virginia Supreme Court. The Loving's lawyers, Philip Hirschkopf and Bernard Cohen, brainstorm a game plan. Are they going for irreparable injury? 
for denial of basic rights. What are the things that can only be done together by man and wife that they can't do in Virginia? They can't come visit her parents together. Or their friends. Well, or their friends. Children can't live with them and go to school here. Breaking up the family ought to be irreparable injury, if anything is. This is strictly a segregation problem. And the Supreme, Supreme Court has said time and again, the federal courts have the right to protect federal rights. And these are federal rights we're talking about. But let's go back to the office and get this thing on paper. Ultimately, the Levings lawyers argued that because Plessy versus Ferguson and separate but equal has been overturned in Brown versus Board of Education, because due process of law and equal protection under the 14th Amendment in race cases has been upheld, the Virginia statute banning interracial marriage between white people and people of color is unconstitutional. So you would think in this in instance you're going to get a good decision from the Virginia Supreme Court, but certainly that is not what happened. The, the Virginia Supreme Court says the ban is still uh, appropriate. Basically, the court says that regardless of Plessy versus Ferguson being overturned, the state can still use its powers to protect its citizens. Now, just because it can't use those powers to enforce school segregation, that doesn't mean it can't use them against interracial marriage. Because interracial marriage is considered bad for certain states' citizens. There was um, the underpinnings of the uh, question in terms of banning interracial marriage came from uh, a, quote, legislative determination that there was a great deal of evidence. Now, on the podcast, people can't see, but I'm super passive-aggressively putting evidence in air quotes, but, quote, unquote, evidence to support that intermarriage between people of color and white people is, quote, incompatible with the general welfare and therefore a proper subject for regulation under police power. And so this is the way they came to it. And they said, yeah, Plessy said you couldn't use police power to separate students in a school, but that doesn't mean that you can't use police power to still do things uh, to protect uh, the community, to make sure that uh, on racial lines, it just means you can't do it for school. And presumably, now that it's been denied in a state Supreme Court, this case can finally be appealed to the Supreme Court of the United States. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Nike, Walmart, and Zappos. And even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you can get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers. And Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead. 
with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Number 395. Richard Perry Loving et al. Appellants versus Virginia. The Supreme Court takes the case. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justice, may it please the court. We will divide the argument accordingly. I will handle the equal protection argument as we view it, and Mr. Cohn will argue the due process argument. You have before you today what we consider the most odious of the segregation laws and the slavery laws. And our view of this law, and we hope to clearly show, is that this is slavery law. Cohen and Hirschkopf argue that the Virginia Racial Integrity Act violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which is made a little simpler by the fact that that is exactly what Chief Justice Earl Warren asked them to do. We like to call this in the law a, a quote, a a leading question a little bit. And so uh, here's what the question is. Whether a statutory scheme adopted by the state of Virginia to prevent marriages between persons solely on the basis of racial classification violates the Equal Protection and Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, yeah, that, that's pretty self-evident. So, you know, when it's teed up like that, uh, when you get cert, you're at the Warren Court, um, I think you're feeling pretty good. And what's the argument coming from Virginia? So this is a book by Dr. Albert Gordon, uh, and he talked about the negative effects of interracial marriage on society, calling them quote, undesirable, and saying that they, quote, hold no promise for a bright and happy future for mankind, unquote. And so there definitely was this idea that the the marriage itself, uh, but then always, right, like this is the same thing in, mar- in always in marriage equality. It's the same thing then, the same things later. The idea is like, oh, the poor children who will be victimized uh, by this, you know, what what's going to happen uh, to them? And so the, the Virginia lawyers talk about this in their briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court. Lawyer Robert McElwain argued for the state of Virginia. And his argument swirls around the same principle that the Virginia Supreme Court insisted upon. That the state could protect its citizens. And because interracial marriage resulted in negative home environments, the state ought to prevent those marriages from happening. Intermarried families are subjected to much greater pressures and problems. It is not infrequent that the children of intermarried parents are referred to not merely as the children of intermarried parents, but as the victims of intermarried parents and as the martyrs of intermarried parents. It also argued, by the way, that because both the person of color and the white person in these cases was punished, it was equal punishment and so not unequal. The prohibition works both ways. You say a man that is prohibited from marrying into another race feels inferior, the prohibition also prohibits a white person to marry a colored person. Prohibition is the same. And I want to point out Cohen and Hirschkopf hammer home not just the fact that this is a violation of equal protection under the law, not just the fact that the Virginia law violated the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, but also the fact that Richard and Mildred Loving loved each other. And that is the right of Richard and Mildred Loving 
to wake up in the morning or to go to sleep at night knowing that the sheriff will not be knocking on their door or shining a light in their face in the privacy of their bedroom for illicit cohabitation. The Lovings have the right to go to sleep at night knowing that should, not, should they not awake in the morning, their children would have the right to inherit from them under intestacy. They have the right to be secure in knowing that if they go to sleep and do not wake in the morning, that one of them, a survivor of them, has the right to Social Security benefits. All of these are denied to them. As I started to say before, no matter how we articulate this, no matter which theory of the due process clause or which emphasis we attach to, no one can articulate it better than Richard Loving when he said to me, Mr. Cohen, tell the court I love my wife and it is just unfair that I can't live with her in Virginia. I have to imagine standing before the Warren Court, the same court that had just declared racial segregation in schools unconstitutional, Virginia had its work cut out for them, and these ACLU lawyers were in pretty good shape arguing against this racist principle before Earl Warren. So what did the court end up ruling? The Supreme Court says, the Warren Court says, the reasoning behind name is, quote, obviously an endorsement of the doctrine of white supremacy, close quote, right? So there you go. You know, you, you could have written the, the, the opinion in like one page, and, you know, and I think Justice Warren is doing that. And he's like, let's just, let's call this what it is. The court ultimately says like, look, we're not looking at this after analysis of what happens afterwards and who's harmed, who's not harmed. We're, we're looking at the beginning part. We don't need to get in to see who's better. This is just wrong. It's white supremacy uh, and it's, it, it is against the Equal Protection Clause. And that could be enough, right? But Earl Warren doesn't stop there. But what's super interesting is that they have at the end of the decision, like put a, put a rainbow starred asterisk next to this, they make a due process also, right? So the 14th Amendment has these two parts. You have to have equal protection of law, but there's also due process. And you think of that normally as like, um, I have to be able to have a, you know, I come to court. I have to have a judge there. I need to have my, you know, lawyer there and things like that. But the court does say very briefly, you know, hey, marriage is a civil right. And the lovings are being denied of this freedom uh, because they are being denied of liberty without due process of law. Okay, so is the court saying anti-miscegenation laws, laws banning interracial marriage, are unconstitutional, full stop? That's right. Now, at the time this case was argued, 16 states had laws banning the marriage of a white person to a person of color. The opinion written by Warren calls these laws, quote, odious to a free people, and said the Virginia Racial Integrity Act had no legitimate purpose, quote, independent of invidious racial discrimination. Hannah, how long did it take for all states to eliminate anti-miscegenation practices? The last state to eliminate anti-miscegenation law from their books was Alabama in 2000. Now, law is not the same thing as practice. Still, it took over 30 years to scrub this form of white supremacy from all of the books. It is shocking that it took to the year 2000 for Alabama to become the last state to adopt that decision. And that what's even more shocking is that it was a ballot initiative, right? Like that people had to go out and vote uh, as to whether or not uh, it was okay for me to marry my wife. Judge Faruqi pointed out that anti-miscegenation law probably was not enforced, even in states that still had laws like that on the books. In terms of implementation, it wasn't like eliminating segregation in schools. There were no tactical busing questions to address, no public education funding to reappropriate. 
This was about a personal decision between two people. Not to be too cheesy, but black and white, right? Like, you just can't get married. And so um, it was, I think, a lot easier to implement, certainly, than Brown or something like that. Uh, but you see that it, it, there were, um, you know, the, the, the poison or the animus behind it, it still lingered and went on. Yeah, and to that point, Hannah, the, the lingering on, and not just the poison, but the positive legacy as well. How did Loving v. Virginia change life in the U.S.? Well, I, f- I feel like a testament to Loving's legacy really shines in this podcast I discovered. It's called The Loving Project. Uh, it was made by a married couple, Farah Parks and Brad Linder, put together in 2017. So Brad and I got married in in the summer between my two years of grad school and that fall in my family law and social policy, I learned about uh, Loving Me Virginia and was just struck by how recent it was. Farah and Brad are an interracial couple, and it occurred to them that they could just interview other interracial couples about being together, that that was the best way to commemorate the decision that allowed certain interracial couples to get married in the first place. And they interviewed couples who had been married for a few months and couples who had been married for 50 years. So in terms of what life might have been like for an interracial couple immediately after loving. The couple that uh, got married the year after loving and, um, you know, met in the South. He was at Vanderbilt. She was at Fisk. And... And to think of the bravery they had to have shown. And Florence, you know, she's pretty fierce, but Ed's like a big teddy bear, you know. And he tells this story about the time when he bought a gun because he could see people following them on the highway. And, you know, Florence found out later and was like, we're not doing that. Just the the fact that they persevered through all of that and also just the fact that they were forced into these, you know, sort of, hard decisions like buying and carrying a gun, you know, this really just sweet affable guy sitting in front of you being like, well, I was going to get a gun to protect my wife and my my family. You know, it was just so powerful um, to hear that and, and, and also to just have seen them come out on the other side and just, you know, be happy and successful and have kids and grandkids and they're, they're my heroes. So for this couple who were only able to marry because of Loving v. Virginia, That case is a seminal moment in their lives. And they lived through what that decision and other civil rights decisions could not do, which is to magically eliminate racism and its threats in the U.S. But I want to know about newly married interracial couples. Did they think about loving what it did or what it didn't do? It was definitely a bigger deal for the older couples because there had just been um, so much censure about, you know, social censure as well as, you know, the loving decision being recent. But in terms of anybody that got married, you know, like after 1980 or so, I'm not sure it was, there was a necessary, necessarily a variation. I do think that the gay couples, like, because they, because same-sex marriage was so new, loving was a bigger thing in their minds because they also recognized, you know, the ways that this marriage hadn't been legal nationwide until 2015, you know, that there were precedents um, for that. And as far as walking through life as an interracial couple and confronting racism together, Farah and Brad told me that, of course, that did come up in a lot of interviews. People did sort of learn how to walk through the world together as a couple 
um, and deal with the, the fact that they might not be always seen the same way by other people. Yeah, and just sort of developing, you know, a greater understanding of racial dynamics in this country. Not that, you know, they are, the white partners completely, you know, cleansed of all, you know, sort of the racism that everybody walks around in and just inherent everywhere, but that they develop a better understanding of uh, what it is that people of color go through. And then also just, you know, the sharing of different cultural traditions. And for Farah, part of the reason she wanted to commemorate this case is because it is so recent. Because it was a decision made by flesh and blood men in black robes. Men who can change their minds. It's scary, actually, I think, um, to realize that um, it was so recent. Like, if you had asked me before I learned about loving if there was a time when when people of different races could marry, I would have said yes. But if you had asked me to guess when that ended, I probably would have guessed a lot earlier than um, 1967. And um, the fact that it was so, you know, um, tenuous. I mean, you know, the Supreme Court, you know, it is the law of the land, but it's still, you know, courts can change and and judges change and so there's also the sense that you know um, these things could change and it's not sort of enshrined into it's not in the constitution right and it's only in certain states laws Um, so I think it's scary to think about how some people's humanity and some people's rights are really being held on by a thread this brings me, Hannah, to the question we always ask. Why do we talk about these Supreme Court cases? Why are they important to return to or to celebrate, as Farrah and Brad did? And I think it's in part because there are moral beings at their core. People who made a decision to preserve a right. And people can make a decision to dismantle that right as well. But either way, the reason they come to that decision is in part based on their being flesh and blood, changeable human beings who see humanity in others. So we talk about these cases to remember what people recognized as a civil right and why they chose to uphold it, so that we will know in the future what to point to if that right is challenged. Yeah, and in the case of Loving v. Virginia in particular, we are talking about a man and a woman who loved one another and wanted to be married live in the same home, raise their children. And the judges who said, yes, that is your right, they didn't just make that decision based on the Constitution. They made it because they heard a story about human beings, and it was a good one. Actually, Judge Faruqi brought this up. You know, yes, judges pass down rulings based on the language of the Constitution. That's where law locates justice and injustice. But a sense of injustice, that's also a feeling. Right and wrong are defined by our founding documents and by our moral compass. Two people loving one another is not some fun anecdote, an oral argument. It's the core of this case. It's part of what makes Loving v. Virginia a landmark case. We're not just robots. We're not automatons. We're just sitting and blindly looking at this. I bring my life experiences with me to court as a judge, as a person in an interracial marriage. Sure, that comes to mind. What would have happened if at the Virginia State Court there was someone who loved a black woman? Um, 
there's someone who he was, um, you know, he was Native American. Uh, perhaps they would have said like the same result, but at least as they were thinking about it, they think about how does this make the lovings feel, right? And so that's my second point as to why this is super important. It's really upsetting. I mean, it really is. I mean, I'm my, so I think about most things now in terms of my kids and my daughter, uh, who went, she was, I guess, like seven pre-pandemic and came back from class and was like, wait, so like, what happened to black people? I don't understand. You're like, oh my God, I don't even know how to begin this conversation. And um, I talked about loving. So, because it's something that was really easy for me um, because it obviously affects us. And I was like, you know, um, there used to be a law that mama and baba couldn't get married. And she's like, why? And I was like, that's a good question. Um, And, um, you know, it's, but it is, I want... Uh, not only because of vigilance, but I just want her to appreciate and me to appreciate like nothing is for granted, uh, that we shouldn't take anything for granted. And like hurt has happened and hurt requires, you know, thoughtful reflection upon it. And then also remedies, right? Like what was the remedies for the loving? Richard and Mildred Loving won their case. And interracial couples won the right to marry without persecution. The Lovings raised their kids in Virginia. Richard died in a car crash at the age of 41, a crash that Mildred survived. She died in 2008 at the age of 68. And though neither of these individuals considered themselves history makers, they were only doing what they thought was right, their case has been cited again and again in marriage equality cases. It was a major precedent case in the decision of Obergefell v. Hodges in 2016, the case that upheld the right to same-sex marriage. Mildred did not live to see that case, but up until the end of her life, she did maintain a sense of right and wrong when it comes to love. Here's what she said on the 40th anniversary of her court case. And so she issues this statement in June 2007. She says, my generation was bitterly divided over something that should have been so clear and right. The majority believed that what the judge said, that it was God's plan to keep people apart and the government should discriminate against people in love. But I have lived long enough now to see big changes. The older generation's fears and prejudices have given way. And today's young people realize that if someone loves someone, they have a right to marry. Surrounded as I am now by wonderful children and grandchildren, not a day goes by that I don't think of Richard and our love, our right to marry, and how much it meant to me that freedom to marry the person precious to me, even if others thought that was the wrong kind of person for me to marry. I believe all Americans, no matter their race, no matter their sex, no matter their sexual orientation, should have that same freedom to marry. Government has no business imposing some people's religious beliefs over others, especially if it denies people's civil rights. I'm still not a political person, but I am proud that Richard and my name is on a court case that can help reinforce the love, the commitment, the fairness, and the family that so many people, black or white, young or old, gay or straight, seek in life. I support that freedom to marry for all. That's what loving and loving are all about. This episode was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Our staff includes Jackie Fulton and Mitch Skaki, and Erica Janik is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Chris Zabriskie, Daniel Birch, Zylo Zyko, and Crowander. We have so many more resources and so many more episodes. You can find all of them at civics101podcast.org. 
And don't forget, you never have to miss a single Civics 101 episode. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review. We want to know what you think of us. And a very special thanks to Rebecca Fanning of the U.S. Courts for all of her help, both on this episode and this entire Supreme Court series. Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers.